Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Today I'm chatting with Sarah Knopp, National Engagement Manager from Baptist World Aid, about their 2023 Ethical Consumer Report. Sarah has such a great way of making things practical to implement in our everyday lives. And in this episode, we talk about how to make more ethical purchasing decisions and how we can all contribute to a safer and better world, something I was really passionate and curious to hear more about. We couldn't do today's episode without GlobalX. GlobalX brings the world of innovation to investors with beyond ordinary tech ETFs. From AI to robotics, GlobalX's range of exchange-traded funds allows you to capture the companies shaping the future. Explore the possibilities at globalxetfs.com.au. AFSL 466778. Investing involves risk and returns are not guaranteed. Refer to the relevant PDS and TMD. My name is Sarah Kelsey and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Sarah, welcome back to My Millennial Money. I know you've been here before. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. No worries. We are so appreciative of having you here. I'm personally pretty curious about how to make more intentional, conscious and ethical decisions in all areas of my life generally. Um, And it can seem like my consumption and purchases is an area where this might be even more accessible or most accessible for me to make those sort of quicker decisions about how to be more ethical. But the thing is, as a collective, we still find it so difficult to do this. So in this episode... I'm keen to uncover the reasons for this and how to solve it. I thought we'd uh, start the episode with a quote that starts the report, which I thought um, was really nice and it caught my attention. It's a quote from Mahatma Gandhi that says, there is no beauty in the finest cloth if it makes hunger and unhappiness. Why then are we finding so much beauty in our mass-produced unethical goods? It's an excellent question to start off with. Look, I think that as um, a collective group, we've become really well accustomed to being offered beautiful products to purchase from. And increasingly those products are cheaper. They're more convenient to access thanks to online shopping. Uh, You know, through social media, we have different trends and looks in our face all the time. Um, And it's it's really easy to be kind of drawn in and feel like these things are going to make us happy. They're going to make us feel fulfilled um, and that we're going to be perhaps more accepted socially if we have these things and, and feel like we're successful. And so We've, we've sort of got stuck in this loop of just needing to consume more and more all the time. And, uh, you know, I come from a fashion background and so I see it all the time in the fashion industry, but we increasingly see it creeping into lots of other areas as well. You know, we, my social media feed is filled now with beautiful food options that I can purchase, uh, different recipes that I should make with different exotic ingredients. And so we're kind of in this Uh, I don't know, this loop that we can't seem to get off where we're just consuming more and more all the time. We're being marketed to more and more all the time. Um, And it's it's become part of our lifestyle. It's it's who we are now. It's synonymous with our personal identity and our personal style. Um, And yeah, it's, it's become a big problem socially and environmentally because our lifestyle and our shopping habits here in Australia do have a really significant negative impact on the people who make our products um, and also on the environment. So it's something that we, we quite urgently need to address as a society. Yeah, absolutely. And you have such a broad range of experience when it comes to both fashion and ethical consumption and kind of understanding the layers that come within that because there are so many psychological layers just in the individual person's decision-making capabilities. From your experience, what are some of those psychological layers that people need to be more aware of in order to work out why they're making the decisions they're making? Yeah. So I think that when it comes to the way that we are marketed to now, um, I really don't I don't want to feel like I'm telling consumers that it's their responsibility uh, only to do better and to understand what's going on in fashion supply chains or in food supply chains um, and to be really aware of how to break down the marketing messages that are being given to you because it's not just about consumers and the choices that we make and how we understand our purchases better. It's also about the power that government and and brands have uh, in the decisions that they're making and the way that they're presenting things to us. Um, there's this really interesting ad that's actually just gone live, which is for a Skims bra. Uh, Skims brand is a Kardashian brand. Uh, and in this ad, Kim Kardashian 
basically uses climate change uh, in a really humorous way uh, to talk about the fact that you can play your role in climate change by purchasing this bra. Now, we all know that the bra is made out of synthetic Uh, materials that are going to have a long-lasting impact on the environment, not just in the way that they were drawn from the planet, so in mining because it comes from petrol, um, but also in the way we care for it because it'll shed microplastics every time you wear and wash it. And then in its afterlife, there's not a good way to reuse that product necessarily. So we know that it's got a huge environmental impact. And yet through this really humorous marketing approach um, and through the power of the Kardashian brand, we know that she's going to sell so many units of this thing, right? People are going to love this product. And so it's just a really good example of how a really serious topical issue like climate change is suddenly being used by this mega brand to encourage us to shop and make us feel like we're doing the right thing or like being on trend, trying something new and innovative. Um, And also there's an offsetting component of this product. So she's giving a percentage of the sales um, back to an environmental cause. But the reality is um, it's a marketing gimmick, right? Like it's just being done to make us buy more, to buy this new product that maybe we'll wear a few times because it's a bit fun, it's a bit different, but but ultimately we'll discard at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, marketing tactics are, you know, a tale as old as time. And so I don't blame consumers for getting on board, for finding it humorous, for, for wanting to try the new product. That's just part of the society that we live in now. Um, it's part of the psychology of social media and, and how we've grown to understand human behaviour and needs and wants. And she's really played into that very nicely with this ad in order to sell millions of these bras. So, you know, I, I don't hold consumers responsible for, for all of that behaviour, um, but brands and the government also need to take responsibility for the way that they're marketing, the way that they're producing, the regulatory sort of actions that government are taking to slow this thing down, this big machine um, of consumerism. And and yeah, I I think we've all got a role to play in understanding the system better and in changing the system. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Uh, It almost seems like sometimes these things come down to like a chicken and an egg situation where if we want to make shopping ethically more popular, it needs to be more accessible for the person to be able to do because essentially the consumer is left a little bit powerless or at least we feel a little bit powerless in that journey to creating a better world. And the way I naturally think about it goes to, okay, well, it's the brand's responsibility, but living within this world that we live in, it's not always as easy as that. And like you said, there's two parts to play. There's two responsibilities. But I want to come back to how can we feel empowered to contribute to that issue? Like what decisions, what power do we have as an individual to actually contribute to change? So I think that the key message that I really want people to understand is even though this is consumer research and we're looking at the behaviours and attitudes that consumers have towards ethical consumption, we are all so much more than consumers. We are more than that transaction that we have with a brand. We are more than the purchases that we make. And so we like to talk about people as being global citizens and global citizens Mm. are aware of some of the issues that are going on in supply chains and they advocate for change. So I would really encourage listeners to ask, what are you going to do next? So our research has shown that, uh, you know, there's been a significant increase in the last few years in the number of people who are willing to do some research. So awareness is on the rise. But where we've seen a decrease is in people who are taking that awareness into action. And there are lots of reasons for that that we can talk about. But, um, you know, there's lots of simple things that you can do now to turn that awareness into action. So you can contact your favourite brands and demand better for workers who who produce the things that you buy. So on the Baptist World Aid website, there's a speak out to brands tool that you can use to email um, over 800 different brands that operate here in Australia and talk to them about their supply chain practices. You can also use social media. So you can either write to brands on social media or you can use your own platform to share what you've learned about ethical consumption. Um, I also encourage everyone to use scorecards. So there's lots of different organisations like Baptist World Aid and Be Slavery Free that now consolidate as much of the information that's out there publicly or even that they've been able to get from brands directly to make it more accessible and convenient for shoppers. So Baptist World Aid has the ethical fashion guide that has scoring for the supply chain practices of over 800 fashion companies. Be Slavery Free has the chocolate scorecard, which looks at the uh, modern slavery impact, um, but also some of the environmental footprint of chocolate brands that we 
we eat here in Australia. So there's lots of different tools out there that you can start to access to make more informed purchases. And the really important thing here is that you do that research before you go shopping. It's very hard once you're already clicking to cart, once you're already walking through the shopping centre to go, hang on a second, how am I going to make sure that this purchase is ethical? But if you download the apps, if you do the research on your you know, on your phone before you go out shopping, then you're prepared to make more informed and better choices before you go out. Um, and there's a fantastic Vivian Westwood quote that says, buy less, choose well and make it last. And I think that that is a fantastic mantra for anyone who's wanting to be more ethical. The best thing we can start doing today is to just stop and just buy less. Um, don't make those impulse purchases then to choose well. And in order to do that, you need to be informed. Um, and we do need to take responsibility for that. And there's, uh, you know, things that organisations are doing to make that easier, but ultimately we need to consume the information to be able to make a better purchase and then make it last. So that's probably the area where you can start influencing the things you own right now is by taking better care of them so that they last longer. That's a brilliant um, practice that you can use to be more environmentally sustainable. So a lot of us don't have the same mending skills that maybe our grandparents would have, but there's some great videos on YouTube that you can use to make sure that you can mend things and keep them for longer. Um, also, I encourage everyone to look at the care instructions that they get on their doona covers or on their t-shirts that they buy because using the care instructions will make sure that that garment or that piece lasts for longer. So there are lots of ways that you can start taking action today to become more ethical and sustainable. Mm, I love how those are all practical things we can implement very quickly. I think your point about making the choice or doing your research before you start shopping is such an interesting point because if you go into whatever shop you're going into with an idea that you want to buy a certain product and you want to have that environmental or ethical consciousness in mind, you're almost relying at that point on the marketing to sell you on which one is the most ethical or the most environmental. But it sounds like that's maybe not something we can 100% trust all the time. And it's important to do our own research in order to make an informed decision. Yeah. So interestingly, um, when we did the survey, we looked at the different barriers that prevent people from shopping more ethically. So we found that 70% of Australians want to change their shopping practices to be more ethical and be more aligned with their values in the next 12 months. But there are some pretty significant barriers getting in their way. Now, interestingly, when we did this research two years ago, the biggest barrier was not knowing what brands are actually ethical. But this year it was the cost is too expensive, the perception that it's too expensive to shop more ethically. So this really speaks to that point that I was making that we've become more aware. It's fantastic to see more people becoming aware and being informed. We found that 42% of Australians are accessing information on ethical consumption fortnightly, which is incredible. That's accessing yeah. news articles. It's listening to podcasts about it. It's following relevant social media accounts. So our awareness is increasing, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, in today's economy, it's probably fair to say that the cost of living has become the most significant barrier for people. This perception that it's going to be really expensive to shop ethically and to shop in line with our values has become the number one barrier. But interestingly, that barrier research also indicated that people feel it's more difficult to shop ethically in store than it is online. And it's easy to see how that happens because when you've got one window open with one of your favourite brands and you're adding things to cart, it's not hard to have another window open where you're Googling, does this brand pay a fair and living wage? Does this brand have sustainability practices in place? Whereas when you're in the shops, it's much harder to do that because you've got these flashy sale signs in your face. You've got a beautiful outfit on a mannequin. You've got, you know, all these temptations in front of you and brands need to do better at being transparent and really clear with their signage in store, their swing tags on things about the ethics of their supply chain, about the certifications that they've invested in, um, about the sorts of things that they're doing to make sure that that product is ethical and sustainable. And so we completely understand why that's a barrier for people. And so doing that pre-research before you go out to the shops will really help you to make a better purchasing decision when you're actually faced with the products in your face. Yeah. Because do you think it's important as well to have this idea of what ethical 
means to you? Because often we talk about ethics and what is and isn't ethical. Even in investing, we talk about making an ethical investment into those ETFs or into those companies that we align with. But it's quite a broad term. And I think often we each apply our own lens to what is and isn't ethical. So do you think it's important that a part of our own research is actually maybe thinking a bit about what we consider to be ethical? Yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, ethical is an umbrella term and it's not something that has a really clear definition. And so whilst we would say that ethical is a word that we would use to describe the design, the production, the retail, um, the purchasing practices of the consumer, it's everything that is from the start of the, um, you know, a cotton bud being planted through to a consumer deciding what they're going to do with that piece at the very end of its life and then how we as a society can dispose or recycle of it. Um, it's, it's in, it includes a whole lot of different things though. You know, it includes worker voice. So do the people have agency who are making your products? Do they have agency to make their own decisions? Are they paid a fair wage? Are the fibres that are being used in these pieces sustainable? Are they sustainably produced? Um, are the chemicals that are being used to produce uh, toxic or are they going to cause harm to the environment? There's all these things that we need to take into consideration. But because there is no no set definition for ethical fashion or for sustainable food production. There's an element to which you can leverage really great resources online to to build your own definition of what is ethical and sustainable, but it also is a bit subjective. So there are things that matter more to some than others. Um, so within our research, we looked at, you know, what people consider to be the most important social justice issues or the most important environmental issues. And we found that for most Australians, they consider something to be ethical if it doesn't have child labour, forced labour and, and that fair wages are being paid. So they're kind of the top three things that Australians are looking for to consider something to be ethical. And when it comes to sustainability, it's things like animal welfare is number one, use of natural resources is number two and no harm to the environment being done is number three. So they're the most common things that Australians say, but it's definitely, it definitely fluxes, you know, every, every Aussie has their own perception of what is ethical and sustainable. And knowing that from the outset is really important because then you'll know what things you can start to look for. So for example, if child labour and forced labour really matter to you, it's important to understand that they are forms of modern slavery. So again, modern slavery is an umbrella term that's used to describe the ways that people are coerced and forced into doing things that are against their free will, they're non-voluntary. And so, you know, if you understand that that's part of modern slavery and you don't want to see child and forced labour, then you can start look, looking to see what a brand is doing around this issue of modern slavery. Now, here, here in Australia, we have the Modern Slavery Act, um, and that means that any brand that earns over $100 million annually uh, needs to complete a modern slavery statement that outlines what they're doing to assess the risks of slavery in their supply chain and also how they're addressing it. Now, it's been a fantastic tool that was introduced by the government, but it's under it's been under review for the last year, and there are 30 recommendations now um, that we're waiting to see what the government's going to take up to really strengthen that act because what's not currently part of that statement creation is real due diligence that says these are the actions that we're going to take and be held accountable for to make sure that we're not just saying we're looking for modern slavery, we're actually going out there and looking for instances of it and we've got a process in place to remediate when we find instances of modern slavery in our supply chains. So yeah, as I was saying, if child labour and forced labour really matter to you, if that's, and it should, because it's a shocking issue, um, a shocking global issue, then these are the sorts of things that you can be looking out for when you're researching a brand. Yeah, I really appreciate you going over the kind of definition in, in a way of modern slavery, because I think so many of us have this idea, and I know I've been very unaware to what modern slavery actually is and looks like and how to make a decision based off that and obviously not wanting to support that. And I think we have this idea in our head of what slavery looks like and that if that was to happen, it would be all over the media and we'd know and it would be this whole huge um, human rights issue, but it almost sounds like modern slavery can appear in more subtle ways as well that maybe not every consumer is fully aware of. Yeah, so modern slavery is honestly hidden in plain sight. So there are 
According to Walk Free and the ILO, who did a Global Slavery Index recently, and you can find that online, it's a great resource, um, there's approximately 50 million people across the globe living in slave-like conditions at the moment, and 27 million of those are in forced labour, mostly in the supply chains of the products that we buy or the services that we procure here in Australia. And so I'm pleased to say that in researching Australians' perceptions towards some of these persisting issues in global supply chains, 80% of people um, you know, had heard of modern slavery. They're aware of this issue. Um, so that's really positive. Awareness is really high when it comes to modern slavery. But interestingly, less than half think that they've purchased something that's been made with forced labour. And we know that that's just simply not the case. Um, so it's really common to see forced labour in fashion supply chains, in food supply chains. So things like palm oil are often produced with slave labour. Uh, we also see it in things like uh, solar panels is a really common issue in, in terms of incidences of modern slavery. And so that's a really hard hitting one if you want to be more sustainable. So you want oh, to yeah. produce your own power, put solar panels on your roof. It's pretty hard to learn that slavery has probably been used in producing those solar panels. So that's a real conundrum. You know, that's the balance between wanting to be more sustainable, but but am I willing to do that at the cost of the ethics that are involved in producing solar panels at the moment? And so there's a lot of issues still to be addressed around modern slavery awareness. We know it's there, but we don't necessarily understand that it's in a lot of the products that we're buying here in Australia. And also, um, only about half of the people that we surveyed understand that it's not just an issue that's happening overseas. It's, it is an issue that happens here in Australia as well. So I was recently at a, at a modern slavery conference and, and have been able to connect with a lot of people through that conference um, that have been exposed to slavery-like conditions here in Australia. So we see it in agriculture, for example, people who are brought over with the promise of to Australia with the promise of a really great job um, and then get forced to do things like pick fruit. Um, they have their travel documents taken from them. They might have been uh, forced to pay back a debt. So they might have been brought over here by someone else. So they paid for all their travel expenses and then are told that they have to work off that debt um, and are held in slave-like conditions, can't contact home, can't can't get out, can't do anything but kind of just work in slave-like conditions to pay off this, this debt or to get their documents back. And so it's not an issue that's just happening in lower income countries, it's not just something that happens over there, like on the other side of the world. It's something that happens here in Australia as well. And none of us can really go shopping to the supermarket or to the shopping centre and think that we can buy stuff and be guaranteed that there's been no slave conditions in the supply chain of that product. It's it's rife, it's everywhere, and we all need to um, be aware, but then start doing more to ensure that it's not in the products that we're buying. Mm, it seems to be like a typical... Western world, you know, there's a layer of privilege to it, perception of the fact that we have this more developed country for a reason because we don't have these things anymore. And as you said, those things happen over there, not here. Um, and I think it can be quite a shock and confronting when we learn and become more informed about these things happening in our own backyard, uh, literally. And so how do we like learn to identify those things. Like, is there a way to even research that? How do we do that? Yeah, if you want to know more about modern slavery, I highly recommend you go to Be Slavery Free's website and also that you check out the Global Slavery Index because it has really useful information about the types of industries uh, where modern slavery is likely to occur, the countries where it's likely to occur. So just start researching and get really informed about where modern slavery exists. And also, contact the brands that you're shopping from all the time and ask them what they're doing to identify issues of modern slavery in their supply chain. And I, I would say don't underestimate the power that you can have as a global citizen because there was, um, you know, a lot in the media uh, in, you know, a decade ago about child labour being used in Uzbekistan to pick cotton that goes into everything from homewares to clothing and beyond. Um, and the global community stood up and said, that's an issue that we're just not willing to, we're not willing to take. We don't want child labour in the supply chains of the things that we're buying. And so a lot of civil society organisations uh, like the one that I work for, but also just a lot of global citizens, a lot of consumers started signing petitions, started contacting brands, started asking what was happening to to eradicate this issue. And really positively, um, recent reports have found that they, they can't find incidences of child labour anymore in cotton farms in Uzbekistan. And so that really demonstrates the power of 
global citizens, the power of the collective voice to do something about these kind of social justice issues. And when we all play our part, when we all understand that we have a responsibility to to do better and to know better, um, then we can actually create change. And so, you know, there's a lot of issues there that we need to resolve, but hopefully sharing a story like that encourages listeners that they can actually make a difference if they use their voice and use their wallet um, to, to demand better. Absolutely. And that's one way, as you say, to turn that awareness into action. Thank you for that perspective, Sarah. And we will go on to the next question right after this ad break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool. And we're back. So I wanted to know if there are any questions or maybe frameworks you personally use when trying to identify an ethical business or make an ethical purchase. Yeah, I absolutely do. So I think, you know, to the conversation we were having earlier, the first thing I do is just slow down and ask myself, is this something I really need? Uh, And if it is, then what am I going to do before I actually make a transaction, before I actually purchase something? And so quite often I will see if I can get something secondhand because that's one way that I can be more environmentally sustainable is by keeping something in use before it goes either to be recycled or goes to landfill. And so I often look secondhand first. And to be honest, it's the thrill of the chase for me with secondhand shopping. I I get so much more satisfaction when I have had something on my list that I've wanted for ages and I finally find it either in, you know, my local op shop or on Facebook marketplace or something like that. Um, I find that really satisfying because I've wanted it for a long time. It's been a gap in, you know, a need that I've had and I've found it and that's always really exciting for me. Maybe that's just me. Um, But then if I can't find something secondhand or if it's something that I'm not willing to buy secondhand, for example, underpants, um, then I will do some research about what product that I'm going to buy and who I'm going to buy it from. So I leverage scorecards as much as I can, because that's where really in-depth research has been done for me and consolidated it and made it really accessible. So where I can leverage a scorecard, I will. Where that's not possible, then over time, I've learned what to look for when I look at a brand's website. If a brand has nothing on their website, about their environmental sustainability, about the workers who are making their products, it's a big alarm bell for me because I believe that the first step for brands is becoming more transparent. And transparency is so important because without transparency, they can't be held to account. We can't be informed consumers. So they're not supporting our desire to do better in the next 12 months. 70% of us want to. If brands aren't transparent, they're not supporting that process. That's a big red flag for me. But also, if they're not being transparent about what's going on in their supply chains, then what reason do we have to believe that they're actually doing their part and tracing their supply chain to learn where that cotton's coming from or where that polyester's coming from? They need to be tracing it all the way back from the factory that's actually producing the product all the way back to where the raw material was first created. And if they're not being transparent about that, then it's hard to believe that they're actually doing the work themselves. So... 
it's always really important for me that there's lots of information available on their website that I can access. And there are a few tips and tricks to looking at that information. For example, certifiers are a great way to understand um, what a brand is investing in. And if, it, if they've got certification, so that could be um, fair trade certification, it could be B Corp certification, then you can really easily understand exactly what that guarantees that the brand has invested in and what, what they're doing to improve their supply chain practices. So that's the third party as well. So you've got this independent review or independent input into the brand supply chain. Um, and it's, it's just a great thing to look out for. So there's some of my tips. Yeah, really helpful. Super, super in-depth and practical. Do you have many conversations with business owners around their contributions to this? Yeah. So in addition to the Australian Ethical Consumer Report, which we've just published, um, we also for the last 10 years have produced the Ethical Fashion Report. So we last produced that in October of 2022. uh, And through that, we assessed the supply chain practices of 120 fashion companies um, that own over 800 brands that operate here in Australia. And as part of that research process, um, we not only look at publicly available information, but we actually work really closely with most of those brands to understand their supply chain practices better. So that will send us information, we'll have conversations, um, we'll you know run webinars where we get to talk to them about what's currently best practice and what are the key challenges that they're facing. And I actually love the fact that the process is so collaborative, that we can have open and honest conversations Um, You know, a lot of the people that I speak to at fashion companies have a real desire to see change and to see their brand do better. It's really encouraging. So even though it's a big ship to turn and there's a lot of work to do because fashion companies operating here in Australia have an average score of 29 out of 100 on our scale and what would we we would consider to be best practice. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But because we've been doing this research for 10 years, we've seen really positive change over the last decade. So we've seen improvements to things like transparency and tracing. Um, But where we haven't seen fashion companies really move the needle is on things like payment of a living wage. So there's a lot of work to be done in those areas with fashion companies in partnership with them. Um, And consumers can absolutely play their part in that as well. I recently saw some research that indicated that if brands paid their workers a living wage when it comes to fashion, um, that's a huge difference for the worker. It means that they can afford things like uh, basic housing, clean water, food, education for their children and have some financial resilience um, as well for emergencies. That's a huge difference that that makes for workers. It helps them break the cycle of poverty in their family and, and plan for a better future. If fashion companies pass on that increase to the consumer, it would be roughly a 1% increase on the cost of a garment. So if it's a $20 t-shirt, it would be 20 cents more for us, for a garment worker's life to be changed. And so, you know, you can't underestimate the power of your input as a consumer. We might not have the most power in terms of, you know, fashion companies have that direct relationship with the suppliers. They're the ones who have the power to pay the living wage at the end of the day. But we are the largest contributor to the system by number. And so if we all use our voice and our and our wallets, we can have a real impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's interesting how it is cyclical in the way that there is a level of privilege that comes with shopping ethically and having energy to put towards doing those things in the sense that it has always felt like the expensive route to shop ethically, which I think is often a common misconception. But then if people are in survival mode, it's quite hard to think about anything outside of that. And so in that way, you don't have the, I guess, like the capacity to contribute to these issues, which the brands have a responsibility to pay you a living wage. If you can't like survive within what you earn, you can't then act on that in a way outside of survival and contribute to a better world, which then doesn't incentivize anyone else to make any better decisions. And it almost feels like cyclical in that way. And so coming back to what I said about the chicken and the egg, like everyone can do their part. And with the collective power, that's where real change can and will happen. And if you do have the capacity to act financially or even psychologically, like that's where um, you can make a difference, even if it's one voice, one curiosity about what could change within those businesses' practices as well. 
Yeah, I think in this, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. And so we can't expect that everyone's going to be able to go out and make the most ethical purchase they they can all the time. And certainly it is a misconception that being more ethical and sustainable is expensive. But in saying that, some of the brands that I trust the most are a more expensive choice than going to some of the mainstream retailers. They're smaller. um, They have different supply chain practices. They have different business models. And I love to support them. But that's where it becomes a bit of a balance. You know, there's this scale between what is a necessity and what is a luxury. And so I have to find the balance along that scale with all of the purchases that I make. So if I want to buy a pair of jeans that are from a smaller, really ethical brand, then that's an investment in my wardrobe. I'm going to make sure I take really take care of that piece and that I keep it in my wardrobe for as long as possible. But also I can balance that out by doing some op shopping as well. And then I can get a really great piece that, um, you know, would have cost me a lot to buy new, but I get it for a bargain because I get it secondhand and it's new to me um, and it's still in great condition, but I've paid a lot less for it than I would have paid at full retail price. And so I find this balance between, you know, buying and investing in really ethical and sustainable pieces and then buying some secondhand pieces to kind of offset that a bit in my budget. Um, But also, as we've talked about, it's not just about the purchases. It's about all the other things that you do around that as well. Um, And so I would just say to people, don't think of yourself as just this consumer. Think of yourself as as a global citizen that's empowered to create the world that you want to see, that is empowered to create the type of lifestyle that you want to see and that that can be a balance between your budget and your goals and your and your values and what you want to see. I would also say um, to people that in this cost of living crisis, just think of it as buying the most ethical and sustainable option that you can afford. If you do the research and, and you've done all that due diligence behind the scenes to, to work out what brands are the most ethical, you'll probably have a list of brands you're just not willing to buy from at all, some that you'd really aspirationally love to buy from, and then some that are doing a great job, but are not all the way there yet. Just just find on the scale what you can afford and then use those really cost-effective tools around that. Contact the brands, encourage them if they're doing a great job, ask them what they're doing around living wage if you want to see them do better. Supplement your purchasing with some great advocacy actions that will help us all change the industries. Yeah, because that's almost a barrier in itself, isn't it? Like feeling like we have to be the perfect person. We have to be contributing all the time in every area and every possible way down to like every single detail. And that overwhelm can often stop you from actually contributing in the ways that you can. And so I really appreciate your perspective on finding that balance within what you can and what you can't do, but just making the best choice you can with the resource you do have. And that's ultimately you contributing um, in a perfect way anyway, that that's doing the best with what you have. Yeah, there's a great phrase around that that goes something like, we don't need a handful of people doing sustainability perfectly. We need everyone doing what they can. And I I do really think that's true. We need to be comfortable with the nuance and the grey areas as we all kind of fumble our way through this journey. Um, We have included in our report something called the Ethical Global Consumer Index. And it's got five A's, which basically represent the journey that you can go on to become a more ethical global citizen. And so it starts with um, agency, which is just that understanding that that you have an impact on others when you make purchases. And it goes all the way through the five A's to advocacy, which is where you are participating meaningfully in the ethical consumption movement. Um, For example, taking some of the actions that we've talked about today. And so it is a journey. It's not just a, you know, I wake up tomorrow and I'm an ethical global citizen. Mm -hmm. It's a whole, there's a whole lot of steps that you can take to shift along that scale from becoming someone who has an understanding that they have agency in their purchases to being a real advocate for change. Yeah, definitely. I love the idea of being an ethical global citizen and I found the findings within the report on what people prioritise in order to contribute to that really interesting. Um, We saw within the report there was that correlation between value for money and price. It seemed like people were placing more importance on value for money more than price, but then people, unethical shopping or yeah, consumption is still so prevalent. Like from your perspective, and I guess you reviewing those results, what do you think we see as being truly value for money? How does that make sense? Yeah. So as you said, 73% of Australians 
prioritise value for money. It's the number one driver when people are making purchases. So value for money is generally understood to be the intersection between price, how much you're willing to pay, and the benefit that you will then receive from that. Sometimes it's called quality, but I think it's I think it's broader than that. I think it's the benefit that you, you stand to receive. Um, so the benefit might be the quality, um, but either way, that benefit needs to align in your mind with how much you've paid for it. Um, so for some people, it includes good ethics. Sustainability might be part of getting a good benefit from something. Um, But we're not quite there with that yet. I'd like to think increasingly so people will look for ethics and sustainability as part of getting good value for what they've purchased, but we're not quite there yet. Um, So many people feel like they're getting good value if there's alignment between what they've paid for it and then the benefit that they've received from it. But increasingly in the age of like fast consumption and ultra fast consumption, um, what defines a benefit or particularly what defines quality has changed drastically because it's not about good quality anymore. It's not about I can see that that's being created really well. That's a great fabric. Um, That's not going to pill easily. The seams are really strong and robust. That's not going to tear or stretch or skew. We don't look for those things much these days, Um, particularly in fashion, you know, with the likes of Shein. um, We might only pay $5 for a garment and we might only get two wears out of it before it's not able to be used anymore. It's got holes in it or it's just gone out of fashion really fast and we don't want to wear it. But for a lot of people, that still constitutes value for money. Because if you pay something like the price of a coffee for your T-shirt and you only get two wears out of it, you've already used that more than you used your coffee. So that still constitutes value for money for people, if that makes sense. So I think what's, what is what is value has shifted a lot, particularly in the last 50 years. Um, but when it comes to value... There's a whole lot of different factors that people consider, but ultimately it's got to be that match between what you paid for it and what you got out of it. Yeah, it's interesting identifying what value actually means. I think I was having this conversation with a friend recently because maybe it was we were talking about how much she should charge for services or how much someone else was charging. And I was like, man, value is so contextual and it's individual as well. Like, it's kind of up to the person to decide what's value for money. You know, I could look at one t-shirt priced as X and think that's ridiculous. And someone else could think that they're getting like the biggest bargain ever for what it actually is. And that probably ties into the discussion we were having earlier about working out what ethical means to you so that you then have a clear idea of what value is to you and mm. then you can make better decisions. Yeah, that's so true. It's it's very much subjective, I think, value. Um, and it's also changes between brands. You know, brands have their own idea about what they think customer value looks like for their customer. And it's any combination of price, quality, service, experience, um, like shop layout. What does it look like? How does it make you feel? And that will differ from brand to brand because if they understand their customer really well, then they know that what constitutes value for their customer is different. So some shops are completely comfortable um, having a price that is out of reach for people, but offering this amazing experience. Maybe when you go into the store, you get a champagne, you get um, personalized shopping assistance, all that sort of thing. To them, they're delivering on what their customer considers to be value. It's a great experience. For other stores, you'll walk in there and it's like bright lights. There just seems to be wall-to-wall stuff. It's really hard to find anything, but gee, it's all cheap. Um, And they know that for their customer, value is price. And so that's what they're going for. The experience matters less. Um, The look of the store matters less than the cost of that item at the end of the day. So it is very subjective and it differs from customer to customer, just like it differs from brand to brand. Yeah, it's made me think how I really need to reevaluate my priorities when it comes to purchasing, because I think when I'm making a purchasing decision, there is intention in what I'm buying, I guess, maybe not why I'm buying it. And then that means that I focus on the wrong things from an ethical perspective. And yeah, I guess it's just because I talk a lot about money, obviously on this podcast and generally, and it's so interesting to me, the process you go through to make a buying decision and how you should give it time. And, you know, you should really think about how many wears you're going to get out of it. But actually there's so much more that comes into why you purchase something and the follow-on effects it has for you and other people as well. Um, And it's not to put like so much pressure on that decision, but it's just to, I think, have more clarity over what the purchase represents in your life. And then that way 
you aren't just consuming for the sake of it? Yeah, I think if we are the sort of person that's really savvy with our money and and really wants to invest well, then we think a lot about the investments that we're making with our super choice or, you know, where we're going to put our investments. But we don't often think about the purchases that we make being an investment in that brand. We, we yeah. enable that brand to keep going. We enable them to to choose the type of business practices that they're going to deem to be acceptable by saying, I'm going to give you money to do that. I'm going to invest in your business so you can keep profiting, you can keep going. Um, so it is an interesting conundrum when you align your money, you align your values and and realise that any purchase that you make is an investment in the type of world you want to see. It's an investment yeah. in the type of brands you want to be operating um, you know, the future of the planet, the, the conditions that workers are in there, all the things that we can contribute to when we, when we use our wallets. So it's pretty confronting to, to think of your money use in that way. Yeah. I'm curious to know for you, what's a good deal? Like if Sarah was to go out there and say, yeah, that was a good deal. I got a good deal for that. What would that purchase look like? Uh, coming back to the thrill of the chase in op shopping, to be honest, it's it's like spending the time going through an op shop that you don't just get, you know, when you go into a retailer, things are front face, they're on a mannequin, so you can just make an easy choice. With an op shop, you've got to go through every rack. And if I find an amazing brand and it's something that someone's, you know, kept in impeccable condition and I can buy it for $10, $20, man, I just think I've got to steal. I just get so excited by that. It's maybe like the hunter gatherer in me. <laughs> I just get yeah. so excited when I have done the hard work and just found an amazing purchase. I actually um, had a story. So I used to be a fashion buyer. So my wardrobe was extensive because I would purchase as I travelled the globe. I certainly don't do that anymore. Um, I, you know, try not to buy as much as I used to. Um, but I still love style. I still love curating my wardrobe. I love it. And I remembered there was a pair of heels that I had purchased when I was in Hong Kong airport on a layover and it came in, they came in multiple colors and I just chose one color and loved these shoes. I've worn, I still own them 10 years later and I've worn them to a lot of different fun events and weddings and things. Um, and I always thought about the other colorway that I didn't purchase at the time. (laughs) And I found them in an op shop in my size, still in the box, stickers still on the bottom. What? Never worn about five, I don't know, five or six years later, I found these shoes and someone obviously bought them, put them in their wardrobe, never worn them and given them to the op shop. And that was like my ultimate shopping score because I had just, it was always like I just waited it out, you know, and and then I found these shoes. You were rewarded. Incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. That is ultimate divine timing. I can't even believe that happened. That's like, just seems like <laughs> the most unlikely situation that worked out so perfectly in every way. Yeah. It was my, my greatest up shop score of all time, I think. Oh my God. So good. And yeah, I guess your experience as a fashion buyer has contributed so much to the way you shop today. Like is your wardrobe quite cyclical in the way that do you sort of cycle of donating and buying secondhand or do you approach it now from the way of you sort of buy, you keep for a long time and you have a much more minimal wardrobe? I definitely don't have a minimal aesthetic. It's just not my style. But I think what I've got better at over time is not buying trends Mm. because they go in and out so quickly. And uh, I mean, that used to be my job to identify those trends, get it into store as fast as possible and then move on to the next one. So I know how that system works. I know how it makes you think that you need things that you just want. Um, And I don't want to buy into that system anymore. And so I think as I've got older and hopefully a bit wiser, I've got a lot better at identifying my personal style and things can go in and out of fashion. I'm never going to buy into Crocs. Like it's just not my personal (laughs) style, right? So uh, they can be as fashionable as you like. I mean, I certainly see a lot of 14 and 15 year olds in my neighborhood wearing them, but I'm just never going to buy them because it's just not my personal style aesthetic. I'm really confident in who I am now. So I buy things and I know that I'm going to like them for a long, long time and I take good care of them. And I do, I guess, I don't know what you'd call this, like the downgrading of my products. So a t-shirt that I used to wear out all the time then becomes a sleepwear. Then it becomes the painting t-shirt. And then if I can, it becomes shredded and it's used to hold plants to stakes in my garden. Like I just get as many uses out of that piece as I can and keep sort of internally downgrading it in my wardrobe until I no longer have a use for it. Um, Because the reality is um, if I can no longer use it, 
you know, can someone purchasing it from an op shop can? Like I, if it's a T-shirt yeah. that's got holes in it, no, they can't. So I try to take personal responsibility for the things that I've worn out. If it's in great condition and I can hand it on, then I do. Particularly having children, there's lots of things that fit that category. My kids have just grown out of it. So we don't have a use for it anymore, but it's certainly got plenty more life in it. So I'll either hand it down to a friend or family member or I'll take it to the op shop. But when it comes to my things, I try to be as personally responsible as I can to see that piece right through to the end of its life. Yeah, wow. I love that perspective. Sarah, I've really appreciated having you on the podcast today to talk about this and uh, so many practical things that we can all take away and implement today and in our next purchasing decision I definitely feel a lot more informed and I know we'll have uh, the report available for people to read in the show notes and looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts so thank you again Sarah for coming on and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure to come here and chat about all things ethical consumption I'm very passionate about it so it's great to be able to share it. Awesome no worries at all thanks everyone. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 